Thanks, Kristen. All right. Let's uh, look to someone next to you and say, listen up. Can you do that? Listen up. Uh, and then can you uh, turn to someone else and say, God wants to speak to you. Well, it is uh, good to see everyone today. Uh, I'm going to jump right into what we're doing. We're starting a new sermon series on the book of Esther. Anyone has, I've heard of the book of Esther. I've heard of Esther before. Okay, if you're an Asian girl in here, your name, chances are, is either Esther or Grace <laughs> or Hannah. <laughs> because when your parents came to America, they went to church, and the only names they knew were those because they read the Bible. Um, Esther. Uh, is a woman, a very famous woman in the Bible. True story. Um, she really lived. I asked uh, some of our middle school girls yesterday, hey, what do you know about Esther from the Bible? And one of the girls said, ah, Esther, there's so many other girls in the Bible, I get her confused with them. That was a pretty honest answer. Another said, she was a queen, she had a cousin, there was a really bad king in the empire that she was living in, that she was married to, different things like that. And uh, one person said, oh, the only reason I know that is because I watched VeggieTales special on Esther. I was like, yay, that's awesome. You know, Esther was so uh, popular and beloved that she was turned into a cartoon. This is great. In fact, I realized that uh, we don't know all that much, at least our middle schoolers didn't know all that much about Esther, which is why I'm excited to begin this series as we go through this fall season. Then I asked some of our adults, and I didn't ask many, but I asked a, a, a few, and they were telling me some of the things that they knew about Esther, and some of them were really on point, especially some of the folks who I talked to this morning as we're kind of in between worship services um, after our first service, just asking some people, and, and uh, they gave some really uh, good feedback. But one of the things I've come to realize is maybe our young people don't know much about Esther, but I realize that for the rest of us, those of us who know something about Esther may have a little bit more of a VeggieTale understanding of the book of Esther and its events than maybe a realistic view of VeggieTale and all of its events. What I want to do today is I'm going to go through chapter one and we're going to set the table. And so what we need to do is do a lot of history. The value of the book of Esther is in this. How do you live as a person of God, as God's person in the midst of a world that's gone crazy, in a world in which so many values are being thrown at us that are antithetical and opposed to the life of God within us? So many teachings, the rise of gay rights and the rise of the alt-right Right, on opposite sides, both of which are saying you got to be, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to follow. There's just a lot of confusion, okay, a lot of confusion out there. How do we live for God in the midst of a world whose values are being imposed upon or seeking to be imposed upon us? We're swimming in this current. How do we live for God in this time? That's the value of the book of, of the gift the value of this amazing book of Esther. But I will say, um, as amazing as it is, and I really believe it is, and I think it's going to be awesome as we journey through it, not everyone thinks it's that amazing. Well, not everyone throughout history has. For the first 700 years of the church, there were a lot of people who didn't like the book of Esther. In fact, there were no commentaries written on the book of Esther for the first 700 years of the church. Okay, that's wild. John Calvin, who is Consider the father of the Presbyterian denomination, uh, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation. They both believed that Esther should not be in the Bible. They said, that's no good. It's bad. Calvin never preached a, a sermon from the book of Esther. Why? 
Why is it met with such disdain and mistrust? We'll talk about that as we go through this series, and we'll talk a little bit about that today, uh, one of the main reasons. But again, uh, today I want to lay it out in its historical context. Throughout history, you know that God's people... Okay, in biblical times were the Jews, okay, the Jewish people, and they lived in Israel. Okay? The northern part of that area was called Israel. The southern part was called Judah. Now, there's a bunch of people, okay, there's a bunch of people who would come and they would cause headaches for the Jewish people. Okay? Again, this is history. If you like history, some of you, how many of you, I love history. Like, I love history. This will be, okay, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, a few of us. A lot of middle school men. That's awesome. Okay? Yeah, you guys love history. This will be fun. Um, if you don't love history, if you love Veggie Tales, I think this will be, you'll be able to track with us here. But for others of us who don't like history or don't like cartoons, one of the main, actually one of several sources that I'm using as I prepare and research, a book written by a man named Mike Cosper. He says, the real book of Esther is a lot less like Veggie Tales and a lot more like the Game of Thrones. I, yeah, I don't know what that response means. I've never seen the Game of Thrones because I've heard that violence, gore, and sensuality are at the heartbeat of the plot, and those are just things that are not good for my soul. It would not be good for my relationship with God, but I heard that it is very, I mean, the plot moves quickly. There's a lot of excitement in it. I think the book of Esther, the true story of Esther, reads a lot like the Game of Thrones would in its violence, its gore, in sensuality, and all of the different plot twists that come along with it. And so hopefully you like either history or Veggie Tales or Game of Thrones. If you don't, hopefully you love the Lord and you'll be following with us. But here's God's people in Israel throughout time. Okay, check this. Here's, here's the history, the trajectory of the people who gave Israel headaches. At the beginning, so there's a bunch of these like uh, people like the Amalekites or the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, people who lived in the land of Canaan, which was God's land. And God said, drive them all out because they worship other gods. If you don't drive them out, they're going to be a pain in your side, a thorn in your flesh. The Israelites kind of like intermingled with them and all this bad stuff happened. And so the Lord began to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. And first he did it through a people called the Assyrians. Okay, this is the first major empire, the Assyrian Empire. The capital was Nineveh. This is where Jonah said, I'm not going to Nineveh because the people there are wicked. They're different from me. They're awful. They do bad things. I ain't going to Nineveh. This is the Assyrian Empire. In 722 years before Jesus came, the Assyrians crushed five-sixths of Israel, the people of God, and just like messed them up. And so the Assyrians, bad, 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 bad mark left on the people of God. After the Assyrians, there was another empire that rose and took over from the Assyrians, beat them, and they were called the Babylonians. Okay, the Babylonians, in 586 BC, they go and they ransack the bottom half. The last two tribes of the people of God were destroyed. The temple was wiped out. Jerusalem was burned down. The walls were destroyed. And the remaining people of God were taken into Babylon. This was called the exile. And this was the worst point in the history of God's people. Everything that they knew, their religion, uh, all the stuff that they, they, the, they used to worship God were destroyed and they're taken to a place where they didn't speak the language, they had other gods, all the, the worst that you can imagine. And in 586 BC, that's what happens. And so they're hanging out in Babylon and this is where the true story of Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego happens in Babylon. About 40-some years later, another empire comes and they dominate Babylon. They're called the Persians. 
They dominate the Babylonians, and here's what they do. Instead of keeping people, they gave them the freedom. If you want to go back to your land, you can do that because they reasoned that if our subjects are happy, then they will be loyal as long as they know who to worship and as long as they give their allegiance to the Persians. So in 539 B.C., Cyrus, the first king of the Persian Empire, said, okay, Jewish people, you guys can go back. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, you know you're subject to us, but you can go back to your land. And it's during this time that a man named Nehemiah, we studied him last year, Nehemiah and Ezra, right, went back to rebuild Jerusalem. So people could go back if they wanted to, but the great majority of people, for whatever reason, either they were too old or too sickly or not healthy enough to go back to Israel because they were quite comfortable in, in Persia at this time, which was formerly Babylon, or because they just didn't care about God anymore. It's like, that's fine. Hey, yeah, that's awesome. You know, we got a new superpower ruling over us, but uh, we're just going to stay here. Right? Few of y'all can go back, but we're going to stay here because, quite frankly, we like it in Persia. What's to like about Persia? We're going to look into that here. Esther takes place in Persia, and it deals with that group of Jews, the massive group of the people of God who chose to remain in Persia even after they were given the freedom to go back home. Okay, this empire would be about 200 years or so, and then Alexander the Great would come and take over and become the next superpower. Okay, so this is where it is in, in human history. The time in which we're talking, this 10-year period from about 483 B.C. to 473 B.C., during the time that Esther was, was living and the events of, of this book we're going to read take place, uh, Confucius and Socrates, they were kind of rising up, born during this time period. So they're all contemporaries with each other. But in Esther chapter 1, we're going to kind of set the stage to look into the historical context to find out why was it so difficult to live for God in Persia and why did so many Jews actually want to stay in Persia? We're going to do Esther chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. And the outline in your bulletin is actually a little bit, uh, a little bit flawed. There's a, a third thought that comes right in the middle of the first two, but we'll get there in a moment. Okay, Esther chapter 1 uh, Verse 1, this is the word of God. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, well, which Xerxes? The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 180 days. Okay, for six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven more days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For Who was this one for? For all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. 
and the royal wine, wow, that was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. This is God's word as we stop here and and pause for just a, a moment before we continue looking into God's word. Okay, what you have here is a description of the world in which the people of God in 483 to 473 B.C. were living. The king at the time was a man named Xerxes. And so it begins, in my Bible, it says, this is what happened. But in the Hebrew, the first word is now. When a Hebrew narrative begins with the word now, it means we're talking about history. Okay, this is real. I'm not telling us it's not once upon a time or long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It says now, okay, This is reality. This is history. And then he gives some benchmarks here. It says, this happened during the time of Xerxes. Now, outside of the Bible, we read a lot about Xerxes from a man named Herodotus, who is a Greek historian. In fact, if you Google him, it will say he's the father of history. So he was a historian, the first person to record history in a non-subjective way. Most of the historians at that time wrote uh, to glorify the land in which they were living or the king who had hired and inscripted them to write history. But Herodotus was the first one to present as objective a view as possible. And what Herodotus said was very similar to what we read here. He reigns over, ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. If you're reading that in the time that Esther was alive, you're hearing this and you're saying, wow, that's from California to uh, the other side, to Florida, from from Washington, Seattle, down down to Miami. Basically, the whole known world at the time was under his rule, under his domain, ruled by the iron fist of King Xerxes. Everyone is reading this, and the first thing you hear after the first verse is, wow, Xerxes is a man of absolute and utmost power and authority. Herodotus says, that he was ruthless as a leader, he was vicious, he was unkind, and they said he was also the best-looking king that the world had ever seen. And so if you've seen the movie 300, you'll see this depiction of King Xerxes. Okay, this is Xerxes right here. Oh, look at him. So handsome. He has his royal barber, and obviously, if you're the king of the world, you have the best orthodontist, hence the perfect teeth, and uh, he's got a personal trainer, he's fit, and he's just, he's the man. This is Xerxes, and so this is kind of the picture that we have of Xerxes. Look at what it says. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, the citadel of Susa was a place that was, a, it was on a hill elevated about 120 feet from the rest of the, uh, from the rest of Persia, the rest of the empire, elevated 120 feet, and there he sat on his royal throne. So if you want to get a glimpse of the king, you can't just see him, hey, face to face like this. You need to look up 120 feet, and you're looking up at the king on his royal throne. History tells us that when he would go to war, he wouldn't actually go to war. He would be carried on his royal throne... And he would be left on top of a hill in order that he might watch the battle happen, tended to by 10,000 personal servants and 2,000 mounted men on horses in order to defend King Xerxes as he sits 
perched atop a hill looking down on the rest of the people. But it goes on. He's on his royal throne, and it says, For a full 180 days, this verse 4, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So here's the language. Royal throne, kingdom, majesty, glory. There's no one else described in this kind of way but a king. And when he's hoisted and elevated, the picture that you get is that Xerxes demands the allegiance not only as a king, but to be worshipped as a god. Because kings in those days were treated not only as royalty, but as divinity. And so here's Xerxes walking around that crazy man with all those piercings saying, not only am I your king, but I am your god. Worship me as such. It goes even further. If you, when you read this, I don't know if you... you Maybe you tuned out when I started talking about the garden and the purple linens and all of these things. I would tune out there too. But do you know the only other places that are described in such detail with the fabric and the colors and the jewels and the stone? Three places. The tabernacle, the temple, and heaven. All three of which were the dwelling place of God. What is being said here? They're saying, Xerxes, understand this, guys. You Jews are living in the midst of the Persian Empire, and Xerxes is your God. He is your king. This is the world in which we live. Fascinating, isn't it? And so here's what he does. The 480 days for six months, okay, here's what this cat does. He wants people to know how rich he is. For, a, for six months, he displays the vast wealth and glory of his for six months man i was saying in in our first service if it if i were to parade all of my wealth and glory it would take all about three seconds <laughs> but here's xerxes he's like guys come and he calls all the military leaders the rulers the princes all these people and says come and i, I just want to show you my glory let me give you a tour of all of my wealth and as he does it takes him six months to do this this is a crazy rich Persian. <laughs> this is insane. Right? This is what he, when it, I, I'm not going to go into great detail, but it says white linen, purple material. Okay, purple in those days was the hardest color to find because it was not found in nature. And so you had to, well, if you found it in nature, it was extremely difficult. You had to make it. You had to fabricate it. It was extremely, so a lot of these people had never seen purple before. And all of a sudden, they're coming, they're seeing purple. This is crazy. And for 180 days, he throws this blowout party. You ever been to a, have you ever been to a party that lasted 180 days? No. Maybe, maybe, yeah, thank you for your honesty. Can I, let me, I just want to share with you about a party that I was invited to. Can I? It, it's not a frat party. It's not a house party. But this is the closest thing that I, I, I could get to coming to Xerxes' 180-day party. Okay? This was when I was in, a, in my prior life. I did college ministry and, and, uh, in, in the heartbeat of Washington, D.C. And so some of these people studied at really you know, prestigious universities and went on to work at the United Nations and got really rich and famous. And so one of my former students sent me this itinerary, uh, invitation for a wedding celebration, okay? Dearest Larry, that's me, Olivia and Manny, we cordially request your presence as we exchange our marriage vows to start a new life together. Please read the following itinerary carefully as it contains important information about our celebration throughout the week, October 10 through 15 of XYZ year. 
held at the resort at blankety-blank on the coast of this state and at the Bellagio Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. So here's the itinerary that we were invited to. On Sunday, check in whenever at 2 o'clock, there'll be a 60-minute spa treatment and then your golf tee off at the Pelican Hill Clubhouse. Then come dressed in formal evening attire as a limousine leaves for the cruise dinner on the Hornblower Cruise on Newport Harbor. Then on Monday morning, wake up and eat breakfast at the Villa Club and prepare in your tuxedo for the ceremony, after which there will be a luncheon, free time, and then the limousine will leave for Fashion Island and Crystal Cove Beach. The limousine will return to the resort and you'll have dinner. Uh, and dinner, I think, let me see who the dinner was made by. Dinner was made by award-winning executive chef Jean-Pierre Dubreuil. <laughs> One of the most recognized chefs in the world. If you don't know, recognize his name, then you are not cultured and civilized. Any French name makes you sound like a great chef. Then Tuesday, we go to sleep and wake up, and a limousine leaves for Long Beach, where we'll take a private helicopter tour, check out of our hotel. The limousine will leave for Las Vegas, where we eat at the Daejeon Korean restaurant before checking in at the penthouse suite of the Bellagio Resort and Casino. On Wednesday, we have a golf tea time at the Wind Country Club, and then the limousine will leave for our spa and sauna at the Imperial Spa and Sauna before buffet at the Bellagio, and then Cirque du Soleil, the O, at the Bellagio, and then there's free time. Thursday morning, we're going to take a Grand Canyon tour on a private jet leaving from Las Vegas Airport. There'll be free time before dinner at the Bouchon restaurant, if you haven't heard of that one. It's also very cultured. Followed by the Blue Man Show by the Blue Man Group at the Venetian Resort and Casino. The limousine will then leave to take you to the airport to fly out. By the way, if you're flying in and out, please inform us with flight schedule RSVP so we can arrange a limousine pickup for you. Thank you very much. And that's only the first two pages of it. There's more. And it's in color also. I didn't, I didn't turn in my RSVP. I didn't go. <laughs> it would have, you know what it would have, you know how many years I would have worked? I would have been in indentured servitude for like 10 years of my life in order to be able to pay for this wedding to go. But why in the world? So I wrote, I, I, just, to, just to kind of see, I shot out an email and I said, hey, I'm really interested in going. Um, when do I need to let you know by? And immediately the response came back and said, no, 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 actually, um, this is not open to everyone. It's just for our family. Uh, I just wanted to send it to you so that you can celebrate with us and know what's going on. Our honeymoon, we're going to take stops in every state in, the world, in America, and we'll come by and visit people. So that can be your way of celebrating. I was like, weird. Like, is this like real life, or is this like, to me, I don't know. I hope he's not and she's not listening to this message on podcast anywhere. <laughs> but to me, it was a gratuitous display of the glory and the wealth of that couple for five days. That's five days. Check it. Xerxes was 180 days of all of that craziness. 180 days. And then after that, for seven days, he says, open bar, everybody come, and he feeds people whatever you want to eat or drink. The goblets, it said, you see, the goblets were made out of pure gold. Not like faux gold, right, which is false gold or fool's gold. It's made out of gold and each one was different from the others. This is insane. Like this guy's crazy. He had so much gold, he had to turn it into piercings all over his body. This, this, it, couches made out of gold. Like what, hey guys, um, 
I've just got like mountains and mountains of gold. What should I do with it? Oh, I've got an idea. Let's make a couch. No one wants to sit on a gold couch, but let's just do it just to show how rich I am. This is crazy. And then for seven days, it says, from the least to the greatest. He goes out to this, and he calls up from the mountain, from the hill of the citadel of Susa. Hey, all y'all people, come up into my crib. It's like if the president, okay, President Trump, okay, whatever you think of him, imagine he goes out into the streets of D- well, sends his messengers into D.C. and says, whether you're a homeless person or you're a House of Representatives rep, whether you're a, a, a congressman, whoever you are, or you're living on the streets, everyone take a day off of work if you got a job and come to the White House because I want to show you something awesome, not just a day, not just a tour, but for seven days and you can eat everything that I eat. All this food, and it's served on a gold platter for you. Again, the least to the greatest. These people have never, they're like, oh my gosh, what is that color? I've seen red before. I've seen blue before, but what is this new color? They've never seen purple before. This is purple. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is only for like the richest people in the world. Oh my goodness. Hence, purple became known as a color of royalty, right? They're like, wow, this king is really, really amazing. And at the end of the day, the whole point was to say, we're all looking for a king. And Xerxes says, I can be the king for you. As we live in this world that's going crazy, as the Jews and the people of God lived in Persia, the subtext of all of this stuff as the glory of Xerxes is being flaunted is, hey, you're all looking for a king. Here's the king that you want. Here's the king that you want. Well, it's all hypothetical and theoretical to us, so let me bring to you the second thought that's not in your bulletin. The second thing is this. Kings make promises. Every king, every king makes promises and demands. Okay? Every king makes promises and demands. If you want to write even longer, you can write, every king makes promises and every king makes demands. The glory of Persia being paraded before everyone. That's not to, it's one thing to do it before the royals and the princes, but it's another thing to do it to the least of people. And so you have these people, they don't have homes, they don't have jobs, they've got nothing. And all of a sudden the king says, come to my house because I'm going to feed you whatever you want. People who've never tasted a sip of alcohol, all of a sudden, it doesn't just say wine. They, they had wine uh, in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And then it says, and the royal wine was abundant also. It's not just like, hey, drink the Charles, the Charles de Gaulle, two-buck chuck. Don't just drink that. I'm going to give you the crystal. I'm going to give you the good stuff here, the stuff that rappers drink. <laughs> this is what you can have also. And so you've got these poor people who have nothing, and they're drinking from the courts of the king. Why is he doing this? Why is that pierced, tattooed, crazy-looking guy throwing this party for all these people, six months and then seven days. Why is he doing that? Here's why. Because Xerxes, the king, who considered himself a god, in, in fact, there were, uh, Herodotus says, he referred to himself as the king of kings, the great king, the king of this great land. So if he had Instagram back then, he would be called King of Kings. That's what his name would be. Or God King or King God. That would be his name. And so the desire of this king who 
thinks he's God is to continue to dominate other lands. And so he's trying to rally support for these people in his fight against Greece to overtake them as well. And so this is why he's trying to bring these kings of other nations, royals, these princes of the other provinces, bringing them together. He's saying, I'll give you all of this. This is what you can have if you pledge your allegiance to me. That's what he's saying. Because you see, every king not only makes promises, but they make demands as well. The same thing is true. Why does he invite all of these people? He says, listen, you guys come to where I am. Come to me and look, this is your future that you can have all of this as long as you bow and pledge allegiance to me. Isn't it great to be a Persian? That's what he's saying. And so you're you're a child of God living in the midst of Persia. You're an oppressed minority, and all of a sudden you get invited for seven days to feast at the table of the king. Everything that you could want is here. And at the end, he says, all you need to do is you just need to subscribe your allegiance to me. In this world in which we live, there's no King Xerxes, but there are a lot of kings that make promises to us too, aren't there? And a lot of kings who make demands, and the way that they do that is they show us what we're lacking in life, and they say, but if you have me, you can have so much better. It's the very, I mean, this is what advertisers know. They highlight your condition. Oh, your skin looks like this, but if you use our product, you can be beautiful like this. Your hair looks like this, right? But if you use our product, it can look like this. This is why you've got no friends, because you don't wear the right shoes, but wear the right shoes, and you can look like this. This is the, the, the heartbeat of a consumeristic world is advertising, and advertising understands how to get into the hearts of people. And the gods of this world and the kings of this world does the same thing. There are different gods, obviously, than Xerxes in our world, but they promise a lot of stuff. And we bow at their altar because we think that the promises can be fulfilled so that we can have meaning, identity, success, and purpose in this life. That's what the king offered to them. You're a nobody right now, but listen, you come and be part of my kingdom, and this is what I can. You can be a Persian. You can have worth. You can have meaning. You can have a reason to live. We're going to dominate this world, and you can be somebody. What are the gods, what are the kings that we bow to in our world that promise us these things? Some of us are bowing to the God of family. If your family looks like this, wow, then you'll be happy. And because your family doesn't look like this, if family, here's how you know that something is your God. You will fight tooth and nail in order to have that God on the throne of your heart. How do you know family is your idol? Is your God, is your king? Because you're doing whatever you can in order to get that, to secure that image so that people look at you and say, they've got the family. Whether you've got kids or not, whether you're single, that means I gotta get married, I gotta have kids. If you're married, I gotta have kids. If I have kids, they gotta look like this. And if they don't look like this, then I'm gonna do whatever I can to beat them into submission in order that they can be the person, the family, we can be the family that the world tells us we need to be. Then I'll actually be somebody. Money. Some of us, Bowing at the altar of money because, you see, every king, every god demands something from us. Money says you work, you work, you work, you work. Sacrifice all that other. You sacrifice your family, sacrifice your marriage, sacrifice your grades, sacrifice your spiritual life, and you bow at the altar of me, and I'll give you meaning. I'll make you into somebody. 
I'll make you into somebody worthy of praise so that when you have these six-day lavish parties at the Bellagio, people will say, you've made it. Bravo. You are amazing. Sex. In Persia, here, this was the rules of the kingdom. If you're a man, you're judged by the size of your bank account. If you're a woman, you're judged by your looks. Not much has changed today. It's the same thing. The same thing. And a lot of us are bowing at the altar of, of beauty if it's women or, 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 or being, being, having people like us. Having the right status, having the right job, and, and we do whatever it takes because every king, every god makes demands on our lives and every king and every god makes promises to us. And we've bought the lie because so often we give all that we have in order to get this king enthroned at the center of our lives and as a king of our hearts. Because we've bought into the promises that Persian kings and Persian gods have thrown at us. See, in, in verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, uh, Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigta, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass to bring before him his wife, Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty, display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Okay, so verses 1 through 9, you're seeing the greatness of the king, but starting in verse 10, there's a plot twist, right? All of a sudden, this great king may not be as great as we thought he was. And so he calls his wife. Okay, he's plastered. He's gone. Seven days, he's been drinking, 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 and he's out there. And he says, hey, okay, this is what's going to happen. Because remember, this is a party just for the dudes. The women had their own party. So you got dudes locked up for seven days. They're drinking. They're having all this stuff. They're having their debauchery, their pleasure. He says the one thing that would get them to seal the deal and bow their knee and give their allegiance to me if I can just get Vashti out here. Vashti, come. And as the king and as the God who sits on his hill, his word is authoritative. And so he says, Vashti, come with your royal crown on your head. But she refuses. So for the first time in the book of Esther, we realize maybe this all-powerful, amazing king isn't as great as we think he is. Because the third thing that we see is that every king will fail, except for one. See, he promises all of this stuff, but he also makes demands. And so to his very wife, he says, come on out, Vashti. You are lovely to look at. What does that mean? I don't know. I, I haven't watched the VeggieTales cartoon of what he's asking for. But, you know, VeggieTales are all vegetables anyways. And so it kind of, you won't be able to, to get the point. But what he's saying here is wear your royal crown. He's saying wear your royal crown, but don't wear anything else, queen. You're lovely to look at. And if, if these guys, these men of the kingdom see you, oh, my goodness, they will instantly bow the knee and say, I give my allegiance to King Xerxes. I bow and I worship this God as my king because he's saying if you follow me, this is what you can have. This is what you can have. And the gods of this world promises, don't they? If you have money, you'll get the women. If you have money, you'll get the men. If you have status, you'll get this. That's what they're saying. This is the world in which we live. Not much has changed in the past 2,500 years. 
And so he wants to flaunt and parade this lovely to look at wife of his. And all of a sudden you think, wait a second. I thought this king was going to protect me. But he won't even protect his own wife. I thought this king was going to provide for me, but at the first sign of opposition to the values of the king, I'm put on notice that this will not be tolerated. Guys, don't miss this. This is the world in which we live. You stand up and you rebel against the values of this world to say, you know what? I'm fighting to, to live a life of, of, of sexual, uh, just devotion to the Lord. And I'm, I'm trying the best that I can out of love for Christ to save myself for marriage. And the world laughs at you and they mock you. And they tell you that you're outdated. They tell you that you're from the 20th century. And they begin, whenever there's opposition to the values of the world, there's opposition to the life of Christ within you. You say, I'm not living for money. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to take the job just because it gives me a lot of money. I've got a mission here at, in this life, and it's bigger than money. And your boss says, That's, you're wasting your life. You're making the wrong decision. You're a fool. And there's all of this pressure because this is our world. But you see, every king makes these promises, and every king makes these demands, and as long as you are, elite, are loyal enough, Vashti's problem was she wasn't loyal enough. Therefore, she opposed, she's deposed. That's all it is. That's how it works in this world. Because you're not loyal enough, because you're not working hard enough, because you don't make enough money, because you're not good-looking enough, you haven't had enough plastic surgery, that's why you don't get the results that I promise you. You just got to do it a little bit more, work a little bit harder, worship a little bit more, give a little bit more of yourself, sacrifice more of the things that you value, and then you can have what I promise you. You're not doing it right. That's what the kings of this world tell you, and every king will fail you. And look at what it says. Verse 13, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. He lists their names, the seven nobles of Persian media. And then verse 15, according to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? Do you understand what's happening here? Yeah, in matters of law and justice, you consult your cabinet, but this is a domestic dispute. This is ridiculous. Maybe the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-providing king isn't really all that great. So here's Olivia and me, and, and we go home later tonight, and I want to watch football because it's the first week of football season, and Olive says, don't watch that. Help me put the kids to bed. Turn off the TV. And I was like, Olive, uh, I really want to watch this. And she says, no, and she turns it off. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so I call a meeting of our ministry team leaders to say, guys, oh, my gosh. Olivia won't let me watch ESPN. This is terrible. According to our church bylaws, what must be done to her? Do you understand how foolish this is? This is ridiculous. He's, this is a domestic dispute. You go deal with it, all-powerful king. Hey, what should I do? I don't know what to do. And so these guys go through this whack thing, and they're like, oh, you know, this is how crazy it gets. It, oh, if Vashti does that to you, then every wife is going to do that to every husband, and there will be anarchy in the kingdom. This must be snuffed out. That's ridiculous. Ivanka decides not to let Donald 
right on his horse. And so uh, the word gets out. It's on Fox News, CNN, all the news reports. Oh, Ivanka does not let President Trump ride on a horse. All of a sudden, every wife says, hey, we're not going to let our husbands ride on a horse either. That's stupid. But that's where they get, it, it's so degenerate in their, their thinking, right? Like, oh, everyone, and every, every, there will be no end to the disrespect and, disrecord and so, discord. And so they say, okay, here's what we'll do. You make a decree that every wife has to obey their husband. He's like, that sounds like a good idea. All of a sudden, you realize the greatness of King Xerxes is actually not that great at all. See, here's what the writer of Esther could have done, because the readers of Esther writing, you know, he's not writing this in real time, right? He's writing this after the fact. The writer of Esther could have said, here's Xerxes. You remember the Xerxes who four years later would go and attack Greece, and he would get his butt kicked, and he would come back with none of this wealth anymore. Do you remember that? And everybody, oh, yeah, that's Xerxes, yeah. Xerxes is not the king. He got, he got destroyed by Greece. Why didn't it just say that? Because this is one of the hallmarks of the book of Esther. Okay, here's what it's trying to do. It's trying to see, show this one simple idea that things are not always the way they appear to be. We've got this crazy world in which we live. We've got crazy leaders in different nations of the world. You may think we have a crazy leader here in America, right? That's... He is kind of crazy, okay? I'm not going to lie. But we see one thing. The book of Esther is don't be fooled by appearances. Because when this is our king living in Persia, then everything within us screams out. Man, after the seven-day feast, the people are saying, it's good to be a Persian. But then you get to the next few verses, the seventh day, and you're like, God, what the heck is going on here? I don't want this guy to be my king. What, it, it, are there no other options for us than to simply bow the knee to the kings of this world and to the empire that's values are diametrically and consistently opposed to the life of Christ in us? Are there no other options? And the reason why all of these people, theologians and commentators, said Esther ought not be in the Bible is because throughout the book of Esther, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of prayer. No mention of the temple, no prophecy about Jesus, no prophet, no word of God, no worship. There's none of that stuff. In fact, God seems to be completely absent from the book of Esther. And therein lies its genius. Because things aren't always the way they appear to be. You might think like in this crazy world, God has left this throne and left some psychotic whatever on the throne. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. This world is going crazy. It's going to hell in a handbasket, and there's no stopping it. It's on a grease track towards a very hot place, and there's nothing that we can do. He says, ah, but don't let yourself be deceived because appearances are deceptive and things are not always the way that they seem because there is another king. 
There is another king who sits enthroned over all of these things. And though we don't hear his name mentioned, you see his hand throughout the book of Esther. And when Vashti gets deposed, it becomes the setup for what's going to happen in chapter 2 with the rise of Esther into the position of king. We don't know what God is doing in our world, but when we don't see him, it does not mean that he's not there. Here's Xerxes. He promised to provide and to protect and to be present with his people, though he sat 120 feet up in the air. He brought the least to the greatest, so they thought that maybe we can get FaceTime with him, but they didn't. He went to Greece and fought a war, and he lost. Is there not a better king? And all of the book of Esther screams, there is another, a better king, a better king. He promises, and he's the only king who will not fail you. He promised to provide. He promised his presence. He got down not from the citadel of Susa, but from the glories of heaven, and he entered into, the, into this world not only to feed us, but to die for the very idols that we worshiped and for the very sins that caused us to go to false kings and gods in the first place. There is a better king. And the first step to standing for God in the midst of a world that's gone crazy is to recognize who the kings and the gods of this world are who are shaping the values of our culture that are opposed to the life of Christ in you and to say, there's got to be a better way. And there is. You know him. You know him. His name is Jesus, the only king who will never fail you. Xerxes took his wife, his queen, his bride, and he exploited her in order to show the men, this is what you could have. But Jesus would come, and to women who were treated like Vashti, loved only for their bodies, loved only for their beauty, seemed as worthy only because of what they could do for a man, Jesus came and he saw into their soul and he loved them in a way that no one else could. And he gave his life for the subjects of his kingdom so that they could know that there's a better king and there's a better way to live. How do we live for God in the midst of a world that's gone crazy? As you live by faith, you believe that there's a greater king overseeing all of the events of history who will one day make everything known to us. Until then, until sight becomes our reality, we cling to faith, we cling to him, and we stand for the God who will never, ever let us down. Let's pray. As we uh, respond to the word of God in prayer, who is your God this morning? Who is your king this morning? There is a God and there is a king. Only one who demands your whole life, but he promised that you'll get more in return than you could ever imagine, far more than you ever gave. Who makes demands, but only because he made those demands on himself first who makes demands but that pale in comparison. And if Jesus Christ is God and he gave his life for you and me, then no act of obedience, no sacrifice is too much for us to make for him. Let's spend a few moments in repentance. Maybe you are the God and the king of your own heart and you do whatever you want and it's playing out in your relationships. That's why you have a hard time getting along 
with your friends or with your spouse or with your bosses or with your coworkers or your classmates or your teachers or your parents or your children because you don't know that you have installed yourself as the king of your heart. Maybe the king of your life is your comfort, your pleasure, your dreams, your vision of what life ought to look like, your wealth. Whatever the king, whatever the God is in your heart, can we surrender that to the Lord and say, God, I want you, Jesus, I want you to be my king. There is no other king who will not fail me. Let's pray for a minute or so. Just sealing this word in our hearts, praying that the word becomes flesh in us. Let's pray for a minute, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll continue to respond and worship through the songs. Father in heaven, we thank you that you know us so well in these timeless truths of Scripture, so practical and relevant in our lives. We're living in a world that's crazy, and oftentimes it's, it's confusing to know how we're supposed to live. But as we begin this journey through the true story of Esther in Persia, the first step that we need to take is to know that there is a better king than the kings that this world offered to us. There is a better God, a true God, than the small letter G gods and idols that this world says are necessary for our significance and status in life. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have pursued other gods and worshiped other kings and bowed and pledged allegiance, knowingly or unknowingly, to other false, to false deities pray that you would have mercy on us and that a vision of your greatness when we see you and when we don't see you would be far bigger and far greater than anything that we know may we not be fooled by appearances but to walk by faith and not by sight thank you so much take our hearts take our lives as we offer ourselves to you in jesus name we pray 